This is a paid commercial program. Unless otherwise identified, the guests on the program are employees of or otherwise represent the advertiser. The opinions expressed therein are those of the advertiser and do not necessarily reflect the views and policies of CKNW. Welcome back to Vancouver Consumer on this soggy Saturday afternoon on the West Coast. I'm Sterling Fox. In just a very few moments, Stuart Zuckerman, founder and senior partner with the Zuckerman Law Group, will be in studio to take your calls and talk about family law matters, divorce, custody, child support, division of assets, all the issues that come up when relationships go sideways. But first, here are some more of the week's top consumer stories we've been following. And I must admit, rather, this one caught me a little off guard. Montreal is now Canada's most reputable city. It's Stuart Zuckerman's hometown, too. In the annual Reputation Institute survey, Montreal ranked tops in Canada in three areas. Advanced economy, appealing environment, and effective government? The survey also looks at emotional connectivity to cities. By moving up to the 10th position overall in the world, Montreal finished as Canada's top city. Toronto was in 13th position. Vancouver dropped to 16th. On the year's top rankings, number one is Tokyo, followed by Sydney and Copenhagen. Bad news this week for, from the UK for folks who like to enjoy what they think is a healthy glass of wine every day. A large new global study published in The Lancet has confirmed previous research showing there is no safe level of alcohol consumptions. The researchers admit moderate drinking may protect against heart disease, but found that the risk of cancer and other diseases outweighs those protections. Using data from 15 to 95-year-olds, the researchers compared people who did not drink at all with those who had one alcoholic drink a day. They found out that out of 100,000 non-drinkers, 914 would develop an alcohol-related health problem such as cancer or suffer an injury. But an extra four people would be affected if they drank even one alcoholic drink a day. The survey people quickly added, Well, most people don't drink just one per day, thus the concern. And here's their bottom line. The strong association between alcohol consumption and the risk of cancer, injuries, and infectious diseases offset the protective effects for heart disease in the study. Although the health risks associated with alcohol start off being small with one drink a day, they can rise rapidly as people drink more. The study shows that British women drink an average of three a day and rank 8th in the world of highest drinkers. British men came in at 62nd. 195 countries were included. Canada didn't show up anywhere. Alarming. And here's a final thought from one of the study's lead authors. Quote, Given the pleasure presumably associated with moderate drinking, claiming there is no safe level does not seem an argument for abstention. There is no safe level of driving, but the government does not recommend that people avoid avoid driving. So, uh, come to think of it, there is no safe level of living, but nobody would recommend abstention. Depending on how you look at it, United Airlines has big news, or maybe disappointing news, for travelers who are selective with their seating assignments. The carrier has announced it will begin charging fees for reserving select economy seats near the front of the aircraft later this year. Huge eye roll from across the desk. Remember, those preferred seats near the front are no bigger than the rest of the economy class, and no special perks like uh, Economy Plus, 
coach will be included. Rather, the fees will be instituted simply because seats near the front of the main cabin are considered more desirable than those near the back because it's easier to get on and off the plane from the front. With the move, United now joins American and Delta. A United representative confirmed the seats will be behind the Economy Plus row and will be available for preferred customers free of charge. However, the rest of us peons will pay and the policy will go into effect later this year. United did not reveal an exact date or reservation cost for securing a preferred economy seat. Ford is recalling the charging cords for over from rather more than 50,000 plug-in hybrid and electric cars in North America, including over 1,300 here in Canada, because they could cause fires in electrical outlets. The company says the 120-volt cords came with certain 2012 through 15 Focus Electrics and some 2013 through 15 Fusion Energy and C-Max Energy plug-in hybrids. Ford says plugging the cords into outlets that aren't on a dedicated circuit or on damaged, worn, or corroded circuits could cause wall outlets to overheat. The company has reports of four fires involving those cords, but no injuries. In three of the fires, owners used extension cords, which Ford says it tells owners not to do. Dealers will replace the cords with ones that can sense high temperatures and shut off charging if necessary, and owners will be notified by mail starting next week. Ford says owners can keep using the original cords, but should follow the owner's manual instructions that spell out the requirements for wallouts. In other words, don't plug the cord in where the manual says you shouldn't. Those are some of the week's top consumer stories. We'll look at a few more later on in the show. A quick break here, and then Stuart Zuckerman returns to the program to take your calls and answer your questions on family law matters. Coming up in just a few moments, Andrew, it's going to happen anyway. Let's open the phone lines right now for Stuart, 604-280-9898. We welcome your calls, and we'll get to Stuart Zuckerman right after this on Vancouver Consumer. Stuart Zuckerman is in studio. Mr. Zuckerman is the founder and senior partner with the Zuckerman Law Group with offices in Surrey and in Yaletown in downtown Vancouver. Good to see you again, Stuart. Uh, congratulations are in order. Since the yes. last time we met and talked on the radio, you've become a married man. Yes, indeed. Great to be here, Sterling. You can see I'm wearing my wedding ring I on my... At, he's been flashing it around anybody who'll look at it. <laughs> I'm very proud to uh, be married. I have a lovely... Uh, a wonderful, caring uh, wife, Elena, uh, who's very sweet, and I'm very happy to be uh, married to her and be a married man now. Well, good for you. Back in 2013, roughly five years ago, the uh, the British Columbia legislature, I assume would be the point of origin, approved major changes to family law practice and family law period in B.C. So these changes have been around with us now, Stuart, for five years. Yeah. Of the changes that came in five years ago, what are the ones that people today still don't appreciate or understand? Yeah. Well, so I think the the, the biggest. So in twenty March of twenty thirteen, the Family Law Act came into force and replaced the Family Relations Act. In the Family Relations Act, it did not deal with common law couples with respect to property rights. It did give common law spouses the right to claim alimony, but it, it did or maintenance. It did it did not deal with property rights. So it was complicated to bring a property claim. 
prior to 2013. Okay. Post-2013, there is an automatic presumption that if you're living together with a spouse for two years or more, they are then your common-law spouse. Um, and they have uh, the, the common-law, each common-law spouse has a right to a 50% uh, claim against the increase in equity from the date of cohabitation to the date of separation in any assets owned by either party, whether it's RRSPs, pensions, uh, uh, homes, um, you know, vacation homes, mm-hmm. anything you've got, um, uh, savings in the bank, whatever has grown from the date of cohabitation forward is 50-50. And also the second change that a lot of people don't know about is that debts are now dealt with the same way. In the family, the former act didn't address debts. The current act says that any debts that grow from the date of cohabitation forward, it's the growth in debt from the date of cohabitation forward of either spouse is subject to a 50-50 split between the parties in terms of responsibility for the debt. So by way of summary, could one say that uh, effective five years ago in 2013, the law formalized all of the rights and privileges of married people uh, and gave them to cohabiting people who weren't formerly, in the eyes of the law, married? In a sense, yes, but in another sense, no. Under the old act, under the Family Relations Act, the, the way the court, the way the legislation approached the matter was that all assets of either party are family assets and they're subject to that 50-50 claim unless gotcha. that would be unfair. So you, so each spouse would have a 50-50 claim even in the equity that existed prior to the cohabitation under that act. But under this act, um, yes, it gives common law couples the rights of married couples, but it changed both for married couples and for common law couples that now there's a, a starting point. It's not, it's not 50% of the equity in the house entirely. It's only the equity that has grown from the date of cohabitation forward, whether you're married or not. Gotcha. It's from the, the date that you start living together, that growth in equity is what's subject to the 50-50 split. And I would guess from the resolution point of view, it certainly makes your job easier because there are clearer guidelines to work with. There are, and the Act itself also incorporates uh, terms about mediation, um, where one party can force the other party uh, to attend mediation to try to settle things rather than going to court. So you can issue a notice to mediate under mm-hmm. the new Act and force the other party to sit down before you go to court and try to negotiate things. So the the new act does focus on trying to settle out of court as well with mediation and collaborative agreements and things of that nature. Right. Our phone lines are open and we open them knowing full well that it would get real busy when Stuart Zuckerman shows up. They always do. 604-280-9898 is the number to join us. 604-280-9898. And uh, let's go to Jesse in Vancouver, who's the most patient on the phone board. Jesse, good afternoon. Good afternoon, Sterling. Thank you so much. Mr. Zuckerman, uh, this is uh, before, you, before your time, but you may have heard about it. In the 60s, uh, we used to live in communes with two or three other men or women. And in my 90s, I'm thinking of doing the same thing. I found a man and three women, and we'll just share a house. Now, in that kind of situation, it gets tricky, because when the marriage happened only by registration, I would know how many marriages uh, I can have at any one time, and there was a maximum of one. Right. But now I don't know. Potentially, I could end up with four marriages. There's one man there, and there are three other women. How would the property issues be handled in a situation like that? Just to 
minor points to keep the situation simple. There are no children involved. Okay. And I have never presented either the man or the th- other three women as my spouse in any social setting. All right. Okay. I-, I think we've already are able to give the award for the most unexpected call yes. of the day. <laughs> First off to Jesse right here. Uh, stand by, Jesse, and we'll let Stuart answer your call. So it's certainly an unusual situation. Um, the safest solution to that situation to prevent uh, any future problems would be to enter into a written agreement with all four or five parties where they where they um, in in something like what's called a cohabitation agreement you can clearly set out that uh, either that you're not spouses or that you're not financially dependent on each other Uh, you can each party can waive any claims in the future to spousal support parties can waive or limit or de or delineate exactly what their property rights would be uh, for the property that's being used to house everybody Um, if you don't have that type of a pre uh, cohabitation agreement uh, in in advance of living once you get uh, living together for once you get to the two year point you you have a problem because mm. because if any of those uh, men or women say that they are financially dependent on you if you're providing the housing for example if it's your house and you're making the mortgage and the property tax and the insurance payments um uh, you're you're supporting them financially, and so after two years, if they leave you or separate from you, they can claim that they were a spouse, that they were financially dependent on you for both housing and groceries and other things. So that can lead to spousal support claims, and they can also claim that um, they're entitled to some share of the uh, growth in equity. So the the best solution is to have a cohabitation agreement. Interesting, and of course, the advantage that Jesse has here, Stuart, is the fact that he's dealing with grown ups. Yes. There are no children. It's not. We're talking mature individuals who are seeking a different solution to enjoy their their golden years yes, and course. so uh, an accommodation is is uh, possible yeah it doesn't in order to be a, a spouse under the act you don't need to be having sex with the person it, it, it can be simply that that interdependence between the two parties living right. in the same home so um, so that's why you need to be careful and, and, and getting a cohab agreement would be the best solution yeah, spell out all the details for everyone to yeah. see and understand and and then sign it and then there's no miscommunication or misunderstanding, etc. That's the best solution. Okay. Uh, let's go to Rachel in Vancouver. Thank you for wa- waiting, Rachel. Good afternoon. Good afternoon. Uh, I have a question for Stuart. Go right ahead, um, please. I have been in the same-sex relationship for six years uh, with my girlfriend. And uh, I had my town home prior to the start of the relationship. And my ex... She never worked. Uh, she's a very artsy person, and even though I asked on many occasions to start working, she refused. And now that we are separated, um, she claims that she's entitled to spousal support and half of my townhome, uh, which seems a little bit ridiculous, but I just want to know if she has a claim against me at all or not. Sure. Can I ask you a question? Can I, can I ask what your annual income is? It's a hundred thousand. And and does she have any annual income at all? No. Okay. So you've been together more than two years. So under the law, you're considered common law spouses. It doesn't matter that it's a same sex relationship. Right, you're still treated the same way under the law. 
so the equity that you had in your home on the six years ago, on the day before she moved in, that's yours. She has no entitlement to any share of the equity that existed six years ago in your townhome. Uh, but any growth in the equity in your townhome from six years ago to today's date or to the date of separation, uh, often to the date of trial if you go to trial, um, uh, that growth in equity is subject to a 50-50 split. So she's entitled to 50% of the growth in equity. And she's also, unfortunately, uh, entitled to uh, some spousal support. If your income is 100000 a year, um, the spousal support guidelines have a range of, uh, of um, uh, spousal support. On the high end of the range, it's 2% times the number of years you've been together times the difference in your annual income. So in your case, 2% times six years is 12%. So 12% of 100000 is $12,000. So you would have to pay her $1,000 a month, mm. roughly speaking. Uh, on the low end, it would be uh, only 1%. So it would be half of that. So it would be 500 a month. But So you'd, you'd be looking at anywhere from 500 a month to 1000 a month in spousal support, um, which is tax deductible to you and would be taxable in her hands. Rachel, does this information come to you as a surprise, or have you been suspicious that this is where it's going to end up? Well, I was kind of hoping it's not the case. <laughs> so uh, I guess I'll have to deal with this now. Well, yeah. And it sounds like you're going to probably need the advice of a good lawyer. There are circ- uh, Yes, there, sure, I think so. Rachel, there are circumstances where um, that 50-50 division um, can be something other than 50-50, and that is if you can establish that it would be substantially unfair to be 50-50, and that means more than unfair. So um, it, it, the best thing to do would be to meet with a family lawyer and, and discuss all the circumstances of your financial arrangements over the last six years, including any discussions the two of you had about finances during that time. It may be that, uh, um, that based on uh, the discussions you've had, if there have been some verbal agreements about how you're dealing with finances, uh, you you may be able to argue for something other than 50-50, but that is certainly the presumption and the starting point for, for the court. Thank you very much. You're welcome. And by the way, Rachel, uh, Mr. Zuckerman's company is the Zuckerman Law Group, and you can find them online at ZuckermanLaw.ca. And uh, the phone numbers and all the contacts, are, he's got the head offices in Surrey, but there's also an office in, in Yaletown, yeah. uh, right downtown Vancouver. So between the two, you should be able to find uh, an opportunity to sit down with Stuart or one of his associates. Zuckerman, by the way, Rachel, is spelt Z-U-K. E-R-M-A-N. And thank you very much for your call this afternoon. Uh, much appreciated. We, uh, are gonna, we're gonna get a call coming in from Campbell River. We got more from Vancouver. 604-280-9898. Uh, we're gonna break for the news at the bottom of the hour in a few seconds here, Stuart. Uh, court. You talked about going to court as, as, uh, a possible date, uh, when you were explaining, uh, terms and conditions to Rachel. How important is it when you seek the services of a lawyer in a family law matter that that individual he or she goes to court and has a track record in court. Oh, I think it's important. If, if you're going to end up in court, you definitely want a lawyer that has some experience uh, before uh, our courts uh, and has been practicing for some time, ideally before the courts. There are some things where you can go with a junior lawyer that doesn't have a lot of court experience. Things like child support and spousal support are very easy to determine, so right. you don't need a senior lawyer. But property division is a complex area that you definitely need uh, a more experienced lawyer who has a lot of court experience. And some of the best in Vancouver can be found at zuckermanlaw.ca. We'll break for the news and lots more still ahead on Vancouver Consumer.
Welcome back to the program. I'm Sterling Fox, joined in studio by Stuart Zuckerman, the founder and senior partner of the Zuckerman Law Group, with offices on 152nd Street in Surrey and on Mainland Street here in Vancouver's Yale Town, just a few blocks from CKNW. Stuart, lots of callers on the phone board. If you'd like to join the conversation, you are certainly welcome to do so. 604-280-9898 as we go forward talking about all matters relating to family law. And uh, we're going to start on the island this time around in Campbell River. John, thanks for waiting through the news. We appreciate that very much. Good afternoon. Good afternoon. Go ahead to Stuart Zuckerman, please. Yes, I just wanted to call in and uh, let your listeners know uh, how good of a job Stuart did for me over the past three years. Oh. Okay. Hi, John. Had, uh, Glad to hear some... Go ahead. I ran into some issues where I was uh, removed from the family home three years ago, and I've worked with Stuart, he's worked with me, to help me get back into the family home and to also get my kids back. And he's represented me on a number of instances since then as well. Yeah, I'm uh, I'm glad that you called in John. John had an interesting case, and he is one of the testimonials on my radio ads. You'll oh, hear okay. John's voice, and uh, there's also a TV ad that's with a TV actor based on John's story. Um, where And this happens all too frequently, where one spouse goes into court and alleges abuse, abuse, abuse. Mm-hmm. So they, they may say there's uh, you, you, you have an affidavit sworn saying that my, my spouse is emotionally abusive, financially abusive, right. physically abusive. Um, and in John's case, the, the, his spouse alleged those things but, but put no evidence in about any any actual occurrences of any violence or any physical interaction or any or any examples of what were the episodes of emo- emotional or financial abuse. She just made these bold claims, and a, a lawyer went into court. What's called ex parte, that means without notice to the other party, and said to the judge, "Here's my client. She's in a woman's shelter, and her affidavit gives, says that repeatedly that the husband was repeatedly physically, emotionally, and verbally abusive to her and the children, um, and so she she wants back in the home, and she wants him." out of the home and the judge in the first instance without hearing from the other side granted an order uh, kicking John out of his house um, granting an order that he couldn't see his children or speak to his children or his spouse and then John came to me with that order that was served on him um, and uh, I looked at the material and said "There's th- th- this is an error of law the court, the judge should not have granted that order because there were no there was no actual evidence of any of the allegations of abuse just the bold assertions without with details no, no, date, no dates no, spe- no, uh, no occurrences no examples of of any of the abuse so john we put together an affidavit it of seems a, if you don't mind my interrupting yeah. it seems a rather thin presentation for it, a judge to toss it, somebody it, out of his house it is you know unfortunately sometimes and this happened in provincial court our provincial courts are very backed up and behind and if a lawyer comes in and says i have an affidavit alleging abuse 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 that sometimes the judge fails to say well what what examples were the were the abuse they just want to move on to the next item sure. on the on the rolls and they they grant the order um, and that's what happened here. We went to Supreme Court uh, for John. Um, we had uh, his affidavit ex- explaining that he had been as much involved in, in fact, more involved than his spouse in the care of the children. He made the children breakfast every morning. He took them to school. Um, he was involved in all their activities uh, during the week. And we had uh, notes from the wife confirming that, uh, that were left to him during the marriage. Um, and uh, the judge overturned uh, that order and granted John uh, access back to the home. And in fact, primary care and decision making over the children was granted to John. Costs were awarded against his spouse for, for the bringing the uh, kind of frivolous application that she had brought and having it overturned. 
Um, and she subsequently brought more applications and lost. And well, John said you had acted for him on a number of occasions. Yes, yes. Yeah. So there were several subsequent applications. And then finally, when we had a trial date set, which would have cost John, uh, with me handling it as a senior lawyer, probably between eighty dollars and $100,000 for me to go to court for a, a week-long trial or mm-hmm. more than a week, uh, we ended up negotiating a settlement um, and uh, avoided a trial and settled the whole case. And John was able to buy out his spouse and keep his home and keep his children in his primary care. And, and uh, he's a great dad. I've known John for many, many years. He's a friend of mine from 20 years ago originally. Ah. Um, and uh, uh, and he's a great dad to his kids and very involved. And he continues to be uh, involved and, uh, and primarily caring for his children. And John, uh, quite an emotional, rather roller coaster ride to have to go through with all of the allegations of abuse. I mean, that's that's very serious sounding stuff, regardless of whether uh, evidence was offered in support of it or not. It still must have hit you right across the forehead like a two by four when that came down. It sure did. I mean, that's that's exactly the feeling I had was just that, right? Uh, completely unexpected, and you know, and you all just act against you as a male in those in those situations, right? Because most of the time the kids go with the women, and you know there are cases where men are the abusers. And in this case, I wasn't, but it's an uphill battle. Yeah. And how true. long a process did this all take? Um, it took the better part of two years, two and a half years. Two years, yeah, yeah, yeah. It took a long time until uh, the it trial did. date was set. So, yeah. Well, John, thanks for your call. I'm glad you were well served thanks, by John. Mr. Zuckerman. Appreciate, appreciate, and you're calling from Campbell River, but Stuart said that you're a lower mainland guy, so you must be on holidays right now. That, that's correct. Yeah, I've got the kids out just for last minute hope before we go back to school. Well, okay. thanks, thanks for taking the time, John. I appreciate it. Good for you. Thanks, yeah, nope, John. Nope. Thank you. You're welcome. Thanks uh, for joining us as we go to uh, Vancouver, and uh, Roy's up next. Roy, hello. Hi. How are you doing? Okay. Thanks. Um, yeah, I got a big problem, Stuart. Um, I've actually been to your office. I, I got one of your uh, colleagues, Tim, to put a um, uh, a freeze on our home sort of thing. A CPL, C- C- Certificate of Pending Litigation. Right. See, what happened is I'm, I'm in love. She's my fiance. Um, she wanted to bring her grandson here. At first I thought, well, okay, but, you know, I don't know how it's going to be, but... Um, we, we bought a home together last uh, a year ago, July, and we, she had the down payment. She borrowed it from her, her, her family. They gave her the money for the down payment. So our deal was that I would, I would pay all the costs, everything for the house until I caught up and then they would, we'd start sharing the responsibilities. Okay. Well, now, um, I, we borrowed, we, we put, I think 40 down, we borrowed 138,000 and change. In one year, I've got it down to ninety six or yeah ninety six thousand dollars because I, I double down every every two weeks, and I also paid the ten percent, the fourteen grand up front, thirteen thousand eight hundred and thirty nine dollars to be exact, um, on July tenth, the year anniversary of our mortgage. So uh, you know, I've proven right there that I, I've caught up to her. Plus, I, I you know she's she's been acting like you know. Ever since we bought the place, like you know, you're kind of lucky that I did this. And so, you, are so, you are you wanting to know what the property division is going to be at the end of the day? See, because when we went to the bank, we went together, and the bank said that my credit was so bad that it'd be easier for us to get the loan. Right. If, so, is is your question that you want? Name. Is your question that you want to know what the uh, what the final division of the equity of the home would be in those circumstances? Yeah. Yeah. yeah so, the, so the presumption of law would be. 
the starting presumption would be that she, that she would get the $40,000 that she put down back. If she can prove that she had that in her bank account before the date of cohabitation, she would get that back. And then the equity that has grown from the date of cohabitation forward would be subject to a 50-50 split. Now, you do have an argument for substantial unfairness. If you made extra payments on the mortgage, the court may reimburse you um, uh, uh, with that. That's not necessarily true, though, because normally it would be only if you made those payments from pre cohabitation savings, um, then you would get that money back. But if that money was earned during the time that you're cohabiting and then you're just making extra payments out of your own paychecks uh, to pay down the mortgage quicker, uh, normally that would not be credited by the court or seen by the court as an, uh, something that would be substantially unfair because it's income earned during the marriage, which is which is presumed to be 50-50 hers in any event. So, um, right. so even though it's your income, she had an interest in that income if it was during the marriage. And if you both chose to use that income to pay down the mortgage and live a more um, a more uh, meek lifestyle, uh, that's the choice you both made and the courts normally won't go back in time and, and, and do an accounting and change those things. So you're right. probably looking at her getting the first 40 back right. and then you get you both getting the growth in equity 50-50. Could I interrupt though? But Stuart, um, we've been together uh, going on five years now. See, we lived in Richmond, we rented a place and Jane bought the food and I and I bought I I you know she saved the money to help with the down payment. So I don't know what she actually had to borrow from her family. So so All here, I know here's she put down the original here, money. But here, here's the answer. Four years for four years we were I I paid the bills and she right. she saved our money. So right? Roy money. Roy if um uh if the money that she, if the forty thousand that she put down was saved by her during the cohabitation, then she would not get that forty thousand back. That would be yeah. the whole equity would be divided between you. If she borrowed money from her family and can prove that it was borrowed money either through IOUs or through a, a ledger the parents kept or loan payments that she made back to them, right, um, right. then then the, then that pre if it came from premarital money from outside the family, that money would also be would be excluded. But if but if the forty thousand was just her own savings during the time that was built up during the time you were together, then that would not be excluded. She has to prove from her bank accounts what she had pre-cohabitation that went into the, the down payment in order to get that exclusion. Roy, thanks very much for the call. I appreciate it this afternoon. And uh, we, I wanted to talk about, it's, again, this, you, you're talking about arrangements that happen between people when they cohabit, when they begin to live together, or perhaps, Stuart, more, more accurately, the lack of arrangements that's, that's between the, people. That, that's the problem. The, the need, what, really pe- what couples need to learn when they're living together is that they should put in writing what their arrangements are. I can tell you that one of the most uh, frequent uh, things that happens is the parents of either the husband or their wife either gift or loan money to the couple to buy their first home. So they might give them a, a $50,000 or $100,000 um, uh, loan or gift to for the down payment on their first home. But what ends up happening is that in order to get that uh, for the couple to qualify for the mortgage, the bank says we need a, a letter confirming that this hundred thousand coming from your parents is a gift. So they sign a gift letter mm-hmm. to the bank saying we have gifted this money and it's not a loan in order for the couple to qualify for the mortgage, and and that can be used later to prove that it was a gift rather than a loan. Sure. So what you really need is an IOU signed by the couple to the parents saying we confirm that you have loaned us a hundred thousand and that we will pay it back and that if we ever sell the home you'll get paid back. That then there won't be a dispute over who whether that money was a gift or a loan. 
loan. Because in the absence of proof of the loan, the court will say it was a gift, especially with the gift letter to the bank. Interesting stuff. Now, that's the prenuptial agreement part of, of these uh, p- these documents between people. And then, of course, there are the separation agreements that people uh, arrange once the separation has occurred. And then there's another one, a parenting agreement. Tell yes. us about that. So a parenting agreement um, uh, just deals with, uh, usually when the parties separate, it deals with uh, uh, who's going to be the guardians of the children, uh, who's going to have final decision-making over uh, education decisions or extracurricular activities or religious decisions, and you can divide that between the the parents, and also a parenting arrangement will set out the schedule of uh, when the children will be with each parent during each week. Now, lawyers have to be involved for these events and these documents, don't they? Usually, that's the best way to do it. If people do it on their own with templates from the internet, they often kind of screw it up, um, and it creates disputes down the roads. It's better to do it with lawyers. Well, and how do the courts look at these do-it-yourself projects that people end up in court over? Well, it's uh, it's very common. I've been involved in them myself, and very often... The um, the do it yourself separation agreement, for example, may be entirely set aside because um, there is something in basic contract law called consensus ad idem. Um, it's a Latin term that means meeting of the minds. And um, w- with these um, these uh, template agreements, a cu- one w- the husband might think that clause nine means X, and the and the wife reads the same clause and thinks it means Y. So there was never a meeting of the minds because they didn't have legal advice to explain what that clause nine meant. And if that is proven to the court that each party had a different interpretation and without legal advice, then the whole agreement may fail. Well, that's it. And, and this goes back to our very first call at the beginning of the show with a fellow who wanted to uh, form some kind of communal arrangement yes. with multiple adults. Yeah. So again, you recommended some kind of arrangement, some a kind of written cohabitation agreement. Would each of the signatories to that agreement have to have a lawyer clear it and say, yeah, you should sign on? That's correct. They each have to have their own independent legal advice. Interesting stuff. That is our program for this afternoon. And boy, Oh boy, did that zoom by in no time flat. Thank you very much for your calls today. Stuart Zuckerman and his colleagues can be found online at zuckermanlaw.ca. And again, Zuckerman is spelled Z-U-K-E-R-M-A-N, zuckermanlaw.ca. Stuart, thanks very much. Great to see you again. And uh, hopefully we'll get an opportunity to do this uh, in a few more weeks. Thanks very much, Sterling. I look forward, look forward to coming back. Excellent. We're back after this. And once again, our thanks to Stuart Zuckerman for another very informative visit. And Stuart, of course, reminds you to call him before your spouse does. And thanks for your calls, too. Next weekend, Labor Day weekend, one of our very special guests lined up for the show is Dan Branson, Loblaw's Senior Director of Produce, Floral and Garden for Canada. Dan will talk to us about the best ways to enjoy this year's harvest of fruits and veggies, and we'll take your calls as well. Time now for Duly Noted, and this time around, our producer Ben Dooley has a look at WestJet flight cutbacks. Thanks, Sterling. WestJet Airlines is cutting back on flights across Canada as it reduces capacity to meet consumer demand while also trying to reverse its first quarterly loss in 13 years. The Alberta-based airline is cutting back on flights between Vancouver and Edmonton, Calgary, Fort St. John, Toronto, Cancun, Puerto Vallarta, Cabo San Lucas, and Palm Springs, among many others. The airline is also cancelling all service to Mexico City that will affect both Calgary and Vancouver. However, travel is still possible through its co-chair partner, Aero Mexico. WestJet is responsibly reducing network capacity by almost 6 percentage points 
as it looks to reduce costs and improve profitability, a spokeswoman said. The planes may be full, but are they profitable? And uh, and just to make sure that these routes that we are flying are profitable, it's always a very difficult decision to remove routes. You know, um, communities that have service, everybody loves to have service, but um, we have to make sure that we're responsibly um, using our assets, our people and our aircraft. WestJet reported a rare loss of $20.8 million in the second quarter and adjusted some of its 2018 expectations to reflect the impact of higher fuel costs. I'm Ben Dooley, and that's Dooley Noted. Well, thank you, Ben. Time for a couple more consumer quickies before we have to go. A study out Wednesday from the Pew Research Center found that two-thirds of American parents are concerned about the amount of time their teenage children spend in front of screens, while more than a third expressed concern about their own screen time. Meanwhile, more than half of teens said they often or sometimes find their parents or caregivers to be distracted when the teens are trying to have a conversation with them. The study calls teens' relationship with their phones at times hyper-connected and notes that nearly three-fourths check messages or notifications as soon as they wake up. Parents do the same, but at a lower, if still substantial rate, 57%. Big tech companies face a growing backlash against the addictive nature of their gadgets and apps, the endless notifications and other features created to keep people tethered to their their screens. Many teens are trying to do something about it. 52% they have, say they have cut back on the time they spend on their phones. 57% did the same with social media. Experts say parents have a big role in their kids' screen habits and setting a good example is part of it. Kids don't always do what we say, but they do as we do, says a professor of pediatrics down in Seattle at University of Washington. Pa- parents are the door that kids will walk through on their way to the world. The good old Farmer's Almanac has released its annual winter weather predictions. Come on, Sterling, it's not even Labor Day, man. According to the website, its long-range predictions show weather trends in temperatures and precipitation. Their famous predictions are usually made 18 months in advance and are traditionally 80% accurate. So, if you're planning ahead for winter, here's to what to expect from or for our corner of Canada. For the West Coast, winter will be seeing near normal temperatures with above normal precipitation and snowfall yes more rain and snow again this year the coldest periods will be late december early january and late february with the snowiest periods in early to mid january and again in late february according to the old farmer's almanac april and may will have below normal temperatures with above normal precipitation so yes enjoy the sun soak up the heat because in a few days time uh, well winter will be making you miss those smoky august days and fortunately we're not having one of them today after too many in a row. That is our program for today, produced by Ben Dooley. Andrew Ferreira is driving the bus. I'm Sterling Fox. We invite you to join us again Labor Day weekend next Saturday afternoon at 2, right here for another edition of Vancouver Consumer on CKNW. The proceeding was a paid commercial program. Unless otherwise identified, the guests on the program are employees of or otherwise represent the advertiser. The opinions expressed therein are those of the advertiser and do not necessarily reflect the views and policies of CKNW.